Welcome to Two Psychologists for Beers. I'm Yoel Inbar. With me here is my friend and co-host, Alexa Tullett. Alexa, how's it going? It's going pretty well, Yoel. How are you? I'm great. You'll never guess what I did for the first time since last summer today. What was it? I went to the gym. What did you do at the gym, Yoel? <laughs> I did. I did. <laughs> You want to know the specific exercises? I did the bench press. I did the squat. I'm super weak. I'm like a weak little baby. It's been seriously <laughs> since last summer that gyms were open here. And it's really, it's huge news that they're now open again, albeit at reduced capacity. And you have to wear a mask, but still um, totally great. So that's that's been the most exciting thing to happen to me in, in quite a while. Are you opposed to um, exercising outside or? Yes, I hate it. I'm against it on all fronts. Uh, no, You're like, well, I guess I can't exercise at all for this whole year. It's That's right. It's totally impossible. I'm just going to have to lie here and eat donuts and eventually gyms will reopen. What could go wrong? Um, there is a, a kind of a nice like a, a park gym sort of thing, like right around the corner from where I am, where you can do like they have bars. So you can do like pull ups and um, like uh, push ups and like dips and things. Uh, but I don't know. I can only do so much with the body weight exercises. I think that you really here's the thing, I think like to do to do well with body weight exercises, like I think you really have to have a work ethic. Like you really have to be willing to push yourself. Whereas when you're like lifting weights and the bar's coming down and it's going to crush you, if you like <laughs> don't don't lift it back up again, this is very motivating. So even a lazy person under those circumstances can be motivated to work hard. And I find that I need that sort of motivation. Yeah, I, I feel the same way, but in a different um my preferences are different. So like I like going to gym classes um, because I need somebody who's like yelling at me and I need like pop music playing to like get me energetic. Um, but I've never been able to like uh, do like weightlifting exercises on my own just because like I've decided that I'm going to do 30 reps of something like I've never I've never been able to do that. I guess I run and I hate running. So I'll take some credit for that. But yeah, but generally you do better with like a drill sergeant yelling at you about what a piece of shit you are. Exactly. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> the more verbally abusive, the better. <laughs> right. When you're selecting trainers, it's like, so how would you put yourself on a scale of one to 10 in verbal abuse? Yeah, the people who are like, you're doing great. I'm like, I'm out of here. So shall we talk about what we're drinking? So I've told you that I feel nervous sometimes about this like uh, beer opening part of the episode. And one thing that I've started to also feel nervous about is like, um, when I have a beer sitting in front of me, I have that constant impulse to open it. And I keep wanting to open it before we start the episode. And this time I almost did that. Um, so I like sort of half opened it. And now it's kind of like foaming and making like a small squeaking noise, which I, I think is too small to capture. I don't, um, I don't hear about oh, hold it up to the mic and see if we can get it. No, I don't. I don't hear, but maybe I can amplify it in the recording. I'll I'll do my best. This is a priority. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Listeners are demanding this content. So anyway, your beer <laughs> is squeaky. Mm hmm. Um, and it is a beer made by Cascade Brewing, um, and it's called Citrus Sage. So it says that it's a barrel aged wheat ale with sage, tea, lemon peel, coriander, and salt. Wow, that sounds great. Um, so I have another French beer. It's from Baldwin, which is again, uh, 
a Quebec brewery. Uh, this name, uh, it's just like impossible. Like the name of the beer. I mean, I try it. I just had Google pronounce it for me and it said it was something like Lueur. Sort of. <laughs> uh it's uh apparently that means like glow or something like that um and it's a pilsner so uh i'm gonna i'm gonna crack it open and try not to spill it on my computer i respect your uh commitment to drinking french beers i was at the beer store today and uh i saw a beer that had a french name and i chose not to get it because i didn't want to pronounce it on this show yeah you know if there were a way to avoid them honestly i probably would but it's like that or Molson canadian you know so mm-hmm. uh, i have stooped that low before but but not today alexa very good you worked out and you picked an unpronounceable beer you're really striving today i've i've really been nailing it today all right shall we crack them open Yum. How's yours? Can you taste Very the good. salt? Yes. <laughs> it's all salt. <laughs> it's funny because I was at an Indian restaurant recently and you could order a lassi that's either sweet or salty. And I was like, what a disgusting way to describe a drink as like salty. I was like, I would never select that. But actually, I do kind of like salty beers. So I don't know. Well, okay, this is a this is a great intro to what we want to talk about because here we are talking about salty beverages, hating on salty beverages. And what we wanted to talk about today was was being a hater, although not of beverages but scientifically. And Alexa, you you proposed this topic and you actually said I, I had this formative experience in which I was told not to be a hater via uh, this paper being being sent around, I guess, to, to all grad students in the lab. So can you tell us a little bit about what this paper is and, and what being a hater means to you? Yeah, so it's interesting rereading this paper. So this is the anti-creativity letters um, that were written by uh, Richard Nisbet. And it's interesting rereading it now because you know, basically the only takeaway I think I got from, or the only thing that I remember is the part about like cautioning people against being haters. And actually really it's more about like avoiding haters. Um, But anyways, this was something that Mickey sent to me at least. I don't know if he, I don't know if he chose me because he thought that I was like particularly likely to become a hater or everyone in the lab. He might have singled you out being like, you know, who seems like, (laughs) or there's a real risk of being a hater is alexa she seems like she has a bad attitude she just walked in here today and she was like shit talking about salty lassies and i was just like i need to nip this in the bud (laughs) it really just comes across so clearly sorry so i interrupted you please continue um yeah so anyways he suggested that i read this article um and yeah i mean i guess i don't i don't fully uh understand the history of the article so it's based on the structure of the screw tape letters, I think, which is something that was written by C.S. Lewis. And C.S. Lewis was writing about, I guess, like an older devil giving advice to a younger devil about how to uh, tempt people or something, tempt people to be sinful or something like that. Um, and so this is a similar format, but it's like um, um, a mentor instructing a mentee about how to um, sabotage a researcher essentially and make the researcher unproductive and i think it's supposed to be sort of like a um it's like a satirical account of 
that's supposed to highlight the sort of counterintuitive things that actually contribute to productivity. So it'll be like, oh, you might think that you should help them make lots of friends so they'll be distracted, but actually their friends will, you know, help their research because they'll be happier and more inspired and have, you know, this like broader perspective and stuff like that. Um, so, so yeah, but, um, my experience rereading it was also interesting. And I think you might have some thoughts about this, Yoel, because, um, when I read this at the beginning of grad school, I was like, I found it really inspiring and, you know, it made me feel excited about research. And there's a lot of advice about how we should read broadly and not become sort of like, um, have tunnel vision about our work and, you know, it's okay to like not read the literature. You can just like have, have ideas that pop into your head and stuff like that. And so, and it was like, it made research sound really fun and exciting and something that you could like integrate with your daily life in a lot of ways. Um, yeah, but now I read it and I sort of cringe. It sounds very naive. And it's also like, there's like a lot of like, name dropping of like these sort of like eminent researchers and talking about how they sort of made it by being, you know, um, I don't know. Uh, it, it just sort of like felt like patting, patting themselves on the back, that kind of thing. So I didn't like it as much as I did when I was younger, but there was this one message that stuck with me, which is basically like, um, if you want to, sabotage a researcher basically the best way to do this is to have them um hang out with a bunch of people who shit on research all the time um and then they will start to doubt themselves and be sort of like crippled by feelings of you know inadequacy in terms of like coming up with a good research idea um and they'll just sort of everybody will sort of go down this cynicism spiral um and i guess sometimes i think back to this cautionary tale because I'll be like talking to my grad students about how, you know, um, they can't trust research or I'll be teaching this to undergraduates. And I, and I fear that I start to sound like this hater that Mickey told me I should not be. So that's the story. Yeah. So there's a couple great quotes in this piece and we're going to put a link to this in the show notes. I don't know if this was ever actually published in a journal. Um, I found it on the internet. Um, it's on some website, so so we'll put up a link, and it's it's worth reading because it's entertainingly written um, in a like I feel like very good illustration of this like specific point of view actually. So even if you disagree with it, it's useful from from that perspective. Um, so this is remember written uh, from the perspective of like an, a more senior like evil tempter to a more junior evil tempter who's trying to tempt this young scientist away from like doing good science and towards being unproductive. So that's sort of their job is to, um, to mess with this, with this uh, grad student. He's a grad student at the beginning of the piece and then junior faculty. Um, so, so advice to the, the junior tempter. Um, you want to steer him away from the people who are absorbed in interesting work and toward the sneerers. When it comes to associates, there is nothing so useful as sneers, especially if they are intelligent and witty. Um, and the idea of of what is sneering, he he's not exactly explicit about it in that early part, but he talks later um, about uh, this, I don't know, fictitious or real program in which uh, the faculty were hypercritical. 
So here, quote, each member of the faculty could find six flaws in every design, 12 artifactual explanations for every finding, and 24 predecessors for every alleged original idea. Every student adopted that same stance towards his or her fellows. And most important, that critical stance became part of the scientific conscience of every student. As a result, hardly one of those talented students has lived up to the early promise shown. So I think this is... Uh, a consistent sort of view that if you're overly critical, that's bad. Like it's bad for your own work. It's bad for the people around you. And, and you shouldn't do that. Uh, and what Nisbet thinks you should do, I think is find something that isn't really inspired by the literature because he talks quite a bit about how reading the literature is bad, but rather inspired by life or uh, perhaps by fiction and find an idea there that you're passionate about and just sort of do that. I think that's, that's sort of his ideal researcher is somebody who's like inspired by the world, takes examples from life or from art and is like, I really want to understand this phenomenon rather than building on the literature, trying to improve what's already been done, or criticizing what other people are doing. So is it? do you think that's like a fair summary? Yeah, I think so. And I think he also emphasizes like this. Yeah, like you said, so he, he doesn't want people to be overly critical, at least. Um, and so I think that part of the message is to be sort of like enthusiastic, um, and excitable about research. Um, and yeah, not too narrow. So read outside of your discipline, you know, like have hobbies outside of your work. Like don't, in in a way, there's sort of like an anti-expertise message where where he seems to be suggesting that if you become too focused and you, you know, God forbid you have like, um, only psychologist friends or, you know, you, you know, don't read fiction or something in your spare time, then you'll just become sort of like, you'll have this tunnel vision, you won't be a good researcher. So, so yeah, I think, I think your characterization is fair. And also when he's talking about the sneerers, um, so yeah, he seems to associate that with criticism. Um, and also with, with, with accusing people of having old ideas. Um, which is something that I can get a little bit more on board with, right? So, like, um, so avoiding criticism seems like something that I wouldn't want to agree to, obviously. But, um, but this sort of like, it's something you can picture, right? Somebody who just sort of like is never enthusiastic about an idea. You can imagine an advisor, right, who thinks every idea is bad or tells their students like every idea has been done before, um, and. And Nisbet sort of presents this as like an unfalsifiable accusation or whatever. Like if you say an idea has been done before, there's like not really much defense. Um, and usually you can find a find some similar article or explanation. Um, so so yeah, that's that's I think his other point is um, we shouldn't be too worried if our idea isn't so original or something like that. So. How do you think we should start with this piece? Should we talk about what we think is valuable about it or try to make kind of like the strongest case that we think 
you know, Nisbet, whenever he wrote this, I think this must have been written in the 80s. Like we can pretend to be 1980s Dick Nisbet and sort of like make the the strongest case we can for this point of view. Or should we start by saying what we think is wrong with it and then try to be more <laughs> constructive? Well, let's let's do the um, let's do the thing where we talk about the sort of article, the article strengths, I guess, first or um Maybe because we sort of ended up choosing this article um, because I had the idea of doing an episode about being a hater or, you know, like uh, training haters in the lab or something like that. And this was an article that I thought of that I think may have like, um, I guess, introduced me to this idea. And so I guess somewhere in my my brain... I found like value in this when I first read it and and I'm still influenced by it now. And so maybe we can, we can start with that and then sort of deconstruct it or maybe, or maybe like, um, reinforce it. I don't know. Um, but I'd say like, so there are still ideas from this paper that I like. Um, one, one idea from this paper I think is kind of consistent with our current, um, the current, the value that we currently place on, something like work-life balance or whatever. So, you know, he's really explicit about saying that you might think that it would make a productive researcher to just like work all the time and always be reading the literature and always be, you know, spending your time on things that are clearly related to work. Um, And that that would be the way to succeed and he's he's not only saying like that's not worth it he's also saying like that won't lead to success so you won't come up with creative new ideas um you won't be happy and productive you will just be sort of like derivative and miserable um and i think that you can uh criticize at least his version of this argument but i do like appreciate his let's say let's say 80s um emphasis maybe like prescient um emphasis on the importance of of balancing our commitments outside of like work and um and our work lives um and then i mean so obviously like the point about sneers stuck with me and there are also still elements of that that i appreciate so um, and this is this is what I worry about, which is one reason that I wanted to talk about this. So uh, I feel sometimes concerned that like this like general cynicism about the social psychology literature um, could be like discouraging to younger students. Um, so I remember like talking to my grad students about um, I don't know, the state of social psychology literature. And I said something like particularly pessimistic. And one of my more junior grad students looked at me and was like, "Um, like, how can you say that to us as our advisor? Like you like condoned us being in this field. And now you're telling us like that the whole field is a shit show. Like what, you know, how, how can you like defend your decision to take grad students and stuff like that? I mean, he was joking, but you know, it would be a valid point. Um, and then, yeah, also just from like a, um, I think sometimes with criticism, it can be like hard to know when 
this criticism crosses the line to being sort of like defensive where you can sort of use it to as an excuse to avoid sort of like trying to do a really good job or trying to be productive or whatever that means to you, right? Trying to be a successful researcher. Um, so I also worry about it in that sense that like, if you become too focused on criticism, then you can use it as a self-handicapping tool. Um, so I guess, yeah, that's what I took from the article when I originally read it. And I still see some value in these messages. Yeah. So I, I want to get back to later, you know, what this says about like training and how to be appropriately skeptical without really bumming students out. Um, so I'll, I'll say what I liked about it. It was, it was entertainingly written. Um, so it's, it's just fun to read something that somebody obviously enjoyed writing and it makes the case I think in the most persuasive way that it would be possible to make it. I, like you, thought that the work-life balance stuff was quite good. Uh, he talks for a while about people publishing too much, and I 100% agree with that. And it's funny to see that already being written in the 80s, and it's not like things have improved since then. So I guess that's something that people have been talking about for quite a while. Um. Now, the best case of the like scientific argument that he's trying to make, and it is interesting that it, it actually isn't, I would say, like the bulk of the paper, although it's what stuck with you. Um, but if we're just going to evaluate that, I think the advice to find something that you're passionate about and that you're intrinsically motivated on and to not chase trends, I think, is all good. That's sort of where it stops for me, because uh, the rest of it... This is where you become a sneer? This is where I become a sneer. Well, I do think that we should come back to, is it possible to be too negative, particularly around more junior people, um, students? But I do think that this reflects a really perverse idea of how you would have a cumulative science of human behavior. So he has some like pretty sick burns about uh, reading reading the research. Uh, what? Let me see if I could find this quote. Once the habit of following the literature is established, it can easily become a lifelong vice. And I guess the point that he's trying to make there is that you don't want to just be purely reactive to what other people are doing. I'm not sure that I even agree with that. Uh, I think that's something that sounds good in the abstract. But then if you think about how does scientific improvement work, it's supposed to be not that everybody goes and reads the Magic Mountain. By the way, his examples of the literature you should be reading are like so fucking pretentious. Have you ever tried to read the Magic Mountain? No, it's I have a, not. It's impossible. It's just this dude is just dying of tuberculosis and he's ha hanging around a, like uh, a hospital and then eventually he dies of tuberculosis. This is like it's really it's it, that sort of like oh man that that I did I did not I was not in the uh, sold on that at all. Uh, but anyway, leaving that aside, um, this idea of everybody just chases this thing that they happen to find interesting 
doesn't really pay attention to the literature, does their own thing, isn't really supposed to be critical of what other people are doing, isn't supposed to care about the methods that they're using and improving them, isn't really supposed to care about the accuracy of other findings that are happening. How does that add up to anything other than a bunch of fun vanity projects is maybe too harsh, but things that you thought it would be fun to pursue? Yeah, that's interesting. So I I was teaching today, and one of the things that we talked about was um, if you were to choose how to evaluate people's research performance, like if you're on a hiring committee or something like that, how would you do it? And one person said, you know, I'd really want their sort of like research agenda to hang together, you know, and to like, you know, I want them to have a focus. And then somebody else said, like, I'm not that concerned about that. You know, maybe, yeah, maybe if you have too much of a focus, then you sort of like lose, you know, sight of how. So we have talked in this class about, you know, the idea that um, that you can become like too sort of like immersed in a field and then basically become unable to sort of challenge some of the assumptions of your field. And I think that it is really valuable to be connected to like ideas and people outside of your field for that very reason, you know, to like not just sort of like um, always take all of the sort of assumptions that your field makes for granted. Right. And I think that that can sometimes be a source of very valid criticism. Anyways. um, So these two students expressed these competing views and I was sort of trying to like balance my response to both. And I was like, yeah, you know, um, yeah, we've we've expressed these concerns about becoming too entrenched in a certain viewpoint. Um, but then at the same time, I've read papers by psychologists who are sort of known to be like, is polymath the right word? Like the people who like a jack of all trades or something like that. Who yeah. Like have a bunch. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. think that's the right word. And, and so like I've read papers by people like that. And sometimes they suck because they are not experts in the field that they're writing, you know? And so like they're you can't be an expert in all fields. Um, And I think it's like a little bit arrogant. And I think that arrogance is reflected in this article to think that you can sort of like write about whatever you feel like at the moment and that it will be worthwhile for someone else to read it. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, there's a a quote here where he says, um, yeah, it's generally on getting people too interested in the literature His graduate program is your best ally in this respect. Everything about it is geared towards giving him the idea that before you work on an idea, indeed, before you even know what your idea is, you begin reading widely on the general topic of your interest. They get it. He's trying to be sort of inflammatory and funny, but yes, you do, actually. Can you imagine, I mean, in in any other serious empirical discipline, that you expect to just be able to stroll in there read nothing, and have a worthwhile idea. Yeah, right. I also wish, so I I really like your senior tempter voice, um, but I also wish that listeners could see your facial expression because you also have these like evil eyebrows going on. (laughs) Thank you. Yes, I uh, specially trimmed my eyebrows to be extra evil for this episode. And I'm sorry that you guys can't see it, but Alexa can describe it to you. Right. Um, But yeah, there's like, there are these moments in in the paper where it's clear that the like that he's trying to satirize the field and it just sounds like he's giving sort of excellent advice like this is a very sensible way to go about you know like um 
like diligently trying to develop some degree of like expertise and competence in a field. Yeah. Like if you think about it, what does that say about the worth of past research in psychology? If it is the case that you can just walk in and do something worthwhile without knowing any of it, like, well, then what's the point of it? <laughs> like, why, why do any of it? To, to entertain yourself? I mean, it seems like here, just implicitly, the core thing is, is it fun and exciting for you? And I guess more and more I'm convinced that that's, that's the exact opposite of how good science happens. Like, good science is very off, often like kind of like tedious grinding away. And like, if we're having too much fun, maybe we should worry. Yeah, I wonder if you would say, you know, anyone could be a psychologist and you just need to like um, be passionate about what you're doing and it will all work out. Or if there are sort of like these underlying assumptions that like, I don't know, you have to be like a pretty smart person already in, t in order to fall into this category. And then you can sort of coast on your like on your smarts and your like creative, clever ideas and everything will work out for you. I mean, there's there's definitely like a. I mean, I mean, it's clear that he is used to people thinking that he's a clever guy, you know, and I wonder if he really like thinks that this is an even playing field or if he thinks that psychology is like a field where, you know, that selects for these clever people who can just sort of like, um, I don't know, uh, bullshit for a while and other people will want to listen to that. Doesn't he explicitly say that you don't need to be that smart? Am I misremembering that? Oh, that's possible. Actually, that would make me feel slightly better. <laughs> <laughs> I think he does. I think he has this sign that says, like, eh, it's not even that important to be super smart or anything. Uh, yeah, it just, I don't know. It's strange. Like, I would, I mean, you know, maybe we're being unfair. Maybe we ought to have him on and he can explain to us what he thinks the point of all of this is supposed to be. But... <sighs> To me, it seems like, how do you hope to build anything lasting using this sort of an approach? Like, what is the theory there by which it adds up to something meaningful? I wonder if it's slightly unfair to be reading it out of context. So, you know, I can imagine this being a more valuable piece of writing if the, like, ethos at the time was, um, I don't know, like, pushing people to be really workaholics and um i don't i i still see your point about um the like merits of doing pretty grueling incremental work and sticking to it and you know it it not necessarily being enjoyable like i i think that's like a hard hard thing to that's part of the article that like I don't agree with and I think it's hard to imagine that that would make more sense with context but but yeah if he's pushing back against the idea that um well I don't know I mean as I'm like trying to articulate this I actually think that um that you would still disagree with him in context and you might even be like one of the the people who he would be arguing against at the time because it he it sounds like he's saying like doing research doesn't have to be miserable and you're like maybe saying kind of does if you want to do a good job 
Yeah, I mean, like, I'm a big hypocrite because I do find my research fun and I choose to do the things that I find fun. But I also don't want to promote an ethic of fun should be your guiding principle. And the way that we evaluate good research is, does it seem like somebody had fun doing it? So somebody who painstakingly tests a bunch of manipulations of some construct to see which one works best. I don't think anybody would describe that as particularly fun. It might be driven by that person's like really deep interest in that construct and figuring out mm -hmm. the best way to move it around, right? So in that sense, it would be the product of internal motivation and, you know, by hypothesis, not just that it happened to be trendy to do this work, but like that doesn't really seem plausible anyway that it would be trendy, I mean. But th there's not really, that's not sort of the kind of research that gets you like jazzed, you know? Um, and it's not like you're like, wow, there's so much pizzazz in that. It's like, no, somebody had to do the hard work of figuring out which of any of these manipulations is the best one. That's super useful. We definitely want to know that. But it doesn't seem to pick on Leslie John again, joyful, you know? Yeah, right. Okay, so speaking of like, okay, so you said you don't want to cultivate this impression in, in your lab or among your students that um, fun should be the guiding principle. Um, so, yeah, I mean, so do you worry at all about cultivating the the sense that um, that nothing is to be trusted and that... Um, I don't know. Uh, yeah, like a sense that the research that we do is invaluable and the literature is invaluable and like, um, yeah, uh, just like a general, um, perhaps like over cynicism or, or something like that. You know, I feel like if they get it anywhere, it's elsewhere. I, I feel like they don't need me to make them cynical. Um, I, I feel that's in the air. Maybe that's the problem, right? And maybe we ought to be pushing back and saying, no, it's not all garbage. There's good, solid work out there. And you're being overly critical. It, unfortunately, oftentimes when you start looking closely at stuff, and this is what really pisses me off about. So if you're working in an area and you're excited about it intrinsically, part of what you're doing is paying close attention to the work that other people are doing in that area, or or maybe the stuff that's considered to be more foundational. And often when you look at that stuff, you discover it has a bunch of holes in it. There's, It's not convincing. And to say that's not what you should be paying attention to, that's not scientific, that's not interesting, I, I just think that that's ridiculous. It it's just backwards almost. Yeah, it's interesting because like, so, you know, when people make this argument, yeah, that that focusing on replication failures and, you know, um, and this push for open science or whatever, that, that it could make students lose faith in the field. I, I mean, I don't, I guess I'm saying that I do worry about that, but I also think that, um, there's this assumption that that not doing that will be like more fun or something like that. And there's obvious counterexamples to that. Like when I was in grad school, the first studies that I tried to do 
were ego depletion studies. And at the time, that was like, that was something that we thought was like, obviously real, you know, like something we took for granted, we were trying to like extend this. And I couldn't get the basic effect. And I hated grad school at the start. Because I was like, I feel like I'm doing all this work and I can't even find this effect that um, is supposed to be super basic. And this is just not fun. So like, I don't know. I, I do think that um, this idea that if we are less critical and more sort of like encouraging or excitable about ideas, that this will make us happier um, is, I mean, yeah, there are obvious like problems with that or counterexamples to that. Right. At a certain point, the world sort of gets in your way. If if you're, I keep trying to run this ego depletion stuff and nothing is working, uh, it's hard to get too excited about it. Right. So it certainly helps if you can, well, this is, uh, I guess, a, a, a snarky thing to say that Nisbe would dislike. I was about to say, well, if you can p-hack your results into working, then it's easier to have that sort of an attitude. Uh, but I do mm-hmm. think there is some of that, Right. It's almost, you almost get the feeling here that the data are incidental. And yes. It, right? It's really about the fun idea. I mean, I see that sort of thread in some, in some sort of like more theoretical papers that are published, yeah, maybe in the 70s and 80s. And I'm, I honestly think that some, some researchers who were working at the time would have said that. And it might be the case that there are still some who would say that. Um, So I think that there are people who I'd be really curious to know what proportion of like psychologists who are working would like explicitly endorse this view, but it seems to exist. And in, in pieces like this, it seems almost explicit that like really what we're doing is like, expressing ideas that we think are cool and interesting and then yeah we're also like doing this science stuff but really that's like not the that's not the main point the main point is the idea and we're we're just sort of trying to like demonstrate it or or like um the the science part is like a almost like performance art or something like that yeah that's right so i was reminded of the the famous daryl bem a book chapter on writing an Mm -hmm. empirical journal article, which is also a very well-written argument for (laughs) a set of norms that I think are really bad. But Mm -hmm. I think that Bem does talk about data as being basically a way for you to tell the story that you wanted to tell. It's not, it ought not to be the main focus and you don't want to get too hung up on the details of it what you want to do is use it in the service of some narrative that you want to build yeah right there's a line in that paper which i read recently because i i assigned it for a class um that that basically says like you are the master of the data not vice versa and i would basically teach students exactly the opposite of that um but that's it's very explicit in that paper that it's like you're the one who's trying to tell the story, you know, like make the data do what you want. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So uh, before we break and get more beer, I want to talk about one more quote here that really jumped out at me because it it gets to maybe the dialogue about uh, replication or kind of research criticism in general. 
So uh, here's this is again. Remember, this is uh, a tempter saying, "Here's here's what you want your guy to do." So this is a bad thing. You want him to see some piece of moderately interesting work, get him to thinking that it is written with alternative explanations, and have him redo the experiments with the major purpose of showing that he is cleverer than the original investigators. Research is least dangerous when it is most reactive. If you play your cards right, your patient won't be doing experiments about nature at all, but experiments about experiments. So one thing that jumped out at me there is this presumption of bad faith that if I come up with alternative explanations or see a problem in some published work, my motivation must be that I want to show that I'm smarter than the person who did the work, right? I'm not interested in what's true. I'm not trying to get it right. I'm kind of being a dick. That's the implication, right? Right, which is really interesting because I feel like that was a lot of the initial reaction to like the initial attempts to replicate studies or to criticize them or to look at people's data. There was just like this, um, like, this is not what we're trying to do. We're all friends here. You know, we're just like, um, we're all on the same team Criticism is a sign that uh, you, yeah, I don't know, you, like, you're, it's a personal attack or, um, but also this sort of, like, idea that you're, like, playing a different game almost, which is sort of consistent with what you're saying about the, like, data um, being sort of incidental. Like, like, there's almost this, this undertone in some of the, like, initial reactions to um, the replication crisis that, that was like, listen, this isn't, this wasn't what we were trying to do in the first place. Like we're, we're trying to like have fun and say some stuff that might be meaningful. And like, we're not really trying to do science the way that you're describing it. Yeah. That's so that struck me here as well, that this is really continuous with what people said about, uh, research critics or replicators, particularly in the earlier methods reform years. So this is kind of the nicer way of saying it, I suppose. But uh, if you're less nice about it, you're like, well, those people are methodolo methodological terrorists or bullies or or whatever. And this is not something that you only see in psychology. So I don't know if you saw this kind of wild article about uh, behavioral ecology, like these people who study, uh, it could be fish, it could be like little shrimps, it could be, well, all, all sorts of animals and how they like interact with their environments. But this article focused on fish. And basically, there's some set of papers that some people in that field believe are are just made up, just fraudulent. And they did a ton of work to investigate this. So they were sort of suspicious of these results. They seemed implausible for various reasons. They ran a bunch of replications. Uh, they tried to get those results. They couldn't. Uh, they've been publishing about it. And the reaction from some more senior people, so these are quotes that are in the piece, although I believe they were anonymous, uh, and we'll put a link to this in the show notes, were basically replication bullies. Why is this clique of jerks trying to tear everybody down, make us look bad, and aggrandize themselves? So it seems like this very common, well, I mean, we have an N of two here, but it, it seems like a path that a field can go down, where it 
institutionalizes these norms that criticism really isn't okay, or or at least you know, criticism about the data. So if I come come up with a theoretical reinterpretation of your findings, maybe that's all right. But if I'm like, you screwed up those studies, those findings aren't believable, that's sort of over the line. And that's going to get me some pretty harsh criticism from the more, more senior people. So it struck me that's not the case in all fields. So uh, economics, for example, they go after each other very harshly. And, you know, you can have questions about what the optimal amount of harshness is. But the only point that I'm trying to make here is that this is something that in some fields is the case and some fields isn't. And I was curious whether you have any intuitions about why is it that certain fields end up in a place where criticism is sort of discouraged and others in a place where it's very much encouraged? Yeah. I mean, so the other field that came to mind when you mentioned economics, like fields where there are the norms for heavy criticism um, was philosophy and i'm not i'm not totally sure if that's accurate that's my impression based on the the philosophers that i know is that there seems to be like a culture of like the criticism stems from sort of like intellectual admiration and this is something that's like very valued and and there might be like um sort of like gradations of that depending on the subfield of philosophy um yeah i mean I don't have, so I'm trying to think of like what's common between economics and philosophy and yeah, I, I don't, it's not clear to me why, why those fields in particular would value criticism. I don't actually, like I don't have a good answer to this. And with econ, I might've said, well, they're closer to the real world they get called on to give policy advice. If they give really terrible advice, if their theories are really bad, it's quite costly for them. Whereas in psych, we're just sort of dicking around, at least at the time like that this was written and that these norms became established. It wasn't a particularly high-profile field. It wasn't relative to econ, particularly well-funded. People weren't often coming to psychologists for advice. So it's kind of like, well, do what you want. It doesn't really matter. And like, why be jerks about it? But all of that stuff you could say about philosophy too, you know, the stuff that they do doesn't matter at all. Sorry, philosophers, but it, it it's something that you do because of the intrinsic interest that you have in understanding the world better, I think, not because of its application. So it's not clear to me what similarities those two fields have that, that psychology doesn't. I was going to say they, Is it they have probably more dudes. <laughs> so that's something. I mean, it's sort of an uncomfortable fact that there's maybe a tension between getting it right as a field and being nice and inclusive, right? So, and, and, and the like mental well being of the people in the field. So, if there's a field in which you're terrified to make a mistake, uh, that's a, a field that probably publishes fewer false findings because you're going to be really meticulously quadruple checking everything. That's going to be bad for your peace of mind for sure. Yeah, I know. As I, as, as I started thinking that I was like, Ugh, I don't like this conclusion that like the philosophers are um, like more willing to criticize each other because uh, yeah, because there are more men in philosophy or something like that. But 
It, it does make me think of like the criticisms of open science as broken science. And I think that there's the same sort of perception there that, um, that criticism is like a male exercise and, uh, and that we want to like avoid criticism to avoid being broy. And I'd like to think that you could perhaps maintain both. So like, I don't know. Yeah. Maybe I'm being sort of like naive or, um, overly optimistic, but there, there is a way to treat criticism as like, as a form of like respect and valuing and admiration of other people's work and, and other fields do seem to be able to embrace that. And that, that doesn't seem at odds with being inclusive and nice, but I don't know. I mean, maybe describing this in the abstract is different than like experiencing the criticism, you know, in concrete form. Right. So uh, I have friends who are philosophers and they have said to me, when somebody really criticizes your work, it's a sign of respect and that they're engaging with you and paying attention. And so you want that. And that sounds great to me. At the same time, I know people talk in philosophy about how those norms are particularly bad for women uh, who are, I guess, less comfortable with this sharp-elbowed style of interaction, and that that's a problem. And I, I, I don't have an answer there. I mean, it would be really nice if there was some way you could have both. But sometimes there's just trade-offs between two things that you both like, and you just have to live with the fact. Yeah, I'm, I'm sort of, I'm sort of skeptical about about this narrative, and I've heard exactly this um, account being given of why, like, women are really underrepresented in philosophy as a field, um, and I've heard this account um, that you just like shared for why this is right that there's like a style of, of like, criticism or. Um, like challenging one another that that like excludes or pushes out or discourages women. I I'm willing to like entertain that that's possible, but but I really don't know if that's true. Um, and I think that that's like a a narrative that could in some cases be convenient, but I don't know. There there might be other ways in which philosophy is discriminatory that have nothing to do with women's inability to to tolerate criticism or something. I know that's like not, that's not quite what the, the story is that's being told, but. I mean, it does verge into this kind of condescending stereotype of like, you can't tell women their ideas have problems because they're going to run away and cry. You know, it's, uh, you're rolling your eyes. Yeah, no, exactly. Because that's, yeah, that sounds infuriating. Hi there listeners. Yoel here. We are being sponsored again this week by Paperpile. Paperpile is the reference manager that you actually want to use. I've been using Paperpile in a project that's in Google Docs with a collaborator. And what's great about it is it plugs into Google Docs. It works fully online. Uh, it's fully collaborative. There's no software to download or install, so it works entirely inside of uh, Google Chrome. Um, Cross-platform, of course. And it's 
really amazingly integrated into the Google ecosystem. So you can cite right from within docs. Uh, you can generate a bibliography. If you're searching for work from Google Scholar, it adds an add to paper pile button uh, right on the Google Scholar page. In many cases, it can even get the uh, PDF for you if that's publicly available. They also have integration for Bib, Text, and Word. They also now have a new mobile app. PaperPile's new mobile app allows you to read and annotate on your iPad, iPhone, or Android device. You can head over to paperpile.com right now for a one-month free trial. And when you like it and you're ready to, to subscribe, you can get all of the features for only $36 a year. But with our discount code, BEERS, B-E-E-R-S, you can actually get 20% off that price, bringing it down to less than 30 bucks a year. So again, that's paperpile.com, discount code BEERS. You can find the link in the code in our show notes as well. Thanks again, Paperpile, for sponsoring this episode. Welcome back. This is the part of the show where I tell you how to contact us. We are on Twitter at Four Beers Pod, so you can DM us there. You can at message us. Uh, that goes to uh, the three of us in theory, although I think it's more me and Mickey who are on Twitter these days, right, Alexa? But Alexa will hear about it. Yeah, she'll. She's nodding. She will. If there's anything that requires Alexa's attention, I will send it to her personally. So uh, yeah, you can contact us there. You can email fourbeerspod at gmail.com. That will go to the three of us. Uh, you can check out our website, fourbeers.com, where you can listen to any of our episodes uh, and drop us a line as well. If you're enjoying the show, please do take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Uh, it just helps people find the show. Um, Alexa, have I left anything out? Uh, no, that sounds good. Should we talk about beers? Let's do it. What have you got there? Uh, I'm trying to figure out actually. Okay. So the, the brewery is Sloop Brewing. Um, and this is called the Confliction Dry Hopped Sour Ale. And it won the World Beer Cup in 2016. 
Wow, that sounds impressive, but I always wonder whether that's just a fake award that the brewery itself made up, you know what I mean? Very unclear. Also, like, what does it mean that it won in 2016? You know, that's a while ago now. It's, it's, been, all, it's been all downhill for the last five years. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Although, I guess if you were going to give yourself an award, you would make it more recent, right? So that kind of raises my uh, my faith in it. Yeah, it sounds more credible, but less impressive. Exactly right. Um, and I have a, a beer from this impossible to pronounce <laughs> French brewery that Mickey made fun of me for. Uh, it is uh, Dieu du Ciel. And I'm sure that's terribly wrong, but that's the name of the brewery. Blanche du Paradis. Uh, it is a Belgian style uh, wit beer. So I'm going to crack this bad boy open. Blanche is not a French word. Blanche? Isn't that, doesn't that mean white? Oh, did you say Blanche? I thought you said lunch. And I was like, that's a hilarious name <laughs> for the beer. <laughs> I was like, Paradise Lunch. Um, I. I like that name. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll note that down when we come out with a beer. Paradise Lunch is what it's going to be called. <laughs> but yeah, no, this is Blanche du Paradis. Anyway, uh, we're going to find out whether this is any good right now. So I feel like this is sort of a standard kind of wheat beer, um, sort of normal. It's not blowing me away. How is yours? Um, it's amazing. Award worthy, I would say. It hasn't uh, decreased in quality at all over the last five years. No, I mean, to be honest, like if I sort of put myself back in my the headspace that I was in in 2016, I would have been more impressed by this beer, but it's pretty good still. I think in the second half of the show, we wanted to come back to something that we've mentioned a little bit already, which is you know, if you're the kind of higher status person in a academic setting, like maybe uh, you're teaching a grad class, you're teaching an undergrad class, you're talking to your advisees, should you worry about being too much of a hater, right? Can you be negative about the field such that you're really making your advisees unhappy? You're ruining their enthusiasm for the science. You're going to make them bummed out and and demotivated. Is that something that that you should watch out for? Now, I'll just say anecdotally, you know, I've I have heard people say that sort of thing, right? Say stuff like, "Oh, that lab meeting is just too much of a downer. I don't encourage my students to go to it anymore because they just come away depressed," right? And I think certainly in theory, it's possible to have such a lab meeting, right? It, it kind of has to be. Um, but is that a risk that we should worry about in in how we interact with our with our own students or, or maybe our colleagues as well, right? Is there sort of excess negativity that can just make us a bummer to be around and not really serve any useful purpose? Okay, so I think there might be value in dividing this into two questions. So one is the question of like, um, is it possible to inaccurately criticizing the field just focus too much on criticism, right? So like, um, your criticisms are valid. And, you know, like, the things that you're saying are true. But is it possible to like, sort of harp on that too much? Or is it, you know, could one argue that you should sort of avoid that to some extent to like not make students too depressed? A separate question, I think, 
And the one that I worry about more seriously is, is it is it possible to sort of like get in a headspace with where you're so critical that you don't see real merit where it exists? And thus you're sort of like, you are legitimately overly critical um, in a way that could be harmful because it's inaccurate and also inaccurately negative. Uh, interesting. Okay. Yeah, I thought you were going to say that the second thing is the thing that we should set aside because, well, then you're just making an error. And the more interesting question is, say you're 100% accurate, should you sometimes restrain yourself just in order to, I don't know, not demoralize students? But I think it's interesting like uh, that that you would put the mistake first as kind of the most important thing to worry about. Do you think that is something that we ought to worry about? So we're both sort of in the like open science, science reform bubble. You, I would say much more so than I am. Um, do you think that there's cases in which we actually are too negative in the sense of like, we're actually wrong, right? We're discounting stuff that ought not to be discounted? No, I don't. Um but I think I think where my concern comes from is this uh, this concern that like okay so in life in general I think I'm pretty um, reluctant to be labeled as defensive so I really try to avoid being labeled as defensive at all costs um, and to the point where maybe sometimes I like overcorrect um, and. Um, like more like very this is probably like a humble brag or something like I'm, I'm probably not as undefensive as as I'm uh, characterizing myself as but I really value being undefensive right and so I guess like with the like concern about being a hater like I think being a hater in some in some ways can can come from this defensive place where you're like uh doing this like hard work like sounds like too much or um I don't want to bother trying to like compete with these people who are publishing a bunch or I don't want to bother trying to like get these awards so I'm just going to shit on all of this stuff um and so I don't want to be that person um so that's where my concern were it it doesn't come from like oh are these like studies more valuable than we think or you know something like that it's more like a um a general um recognition that that often defensiveness is hard to recognize in oneself yeah interesting I, I mean do you think there's that you personally are at risk of that of like dismissing things that you uh i don't know they let's stick with the awards thing actually that's an interesting one like are you at risk for saying like well i haven't won these awards so the whole concept of awards just sucks i don't know i mean aren't all of us a bit at risk for that I mean, I definitely am, right? So I've been very upfront. I forget which episode this was, but Mickey and I talked about this. And I was like, I think these awards are stupid. Now, keep in mind, I've never fucking won one. So that's definitely going to influence my point of view here. But I mean, I guess it seems to me like you can't get rid of your bias and there's motivated reasoning everywhere. Either way, right? Certainly the award winners are motivated to think that awards are great mm -hmm. and uh, really reflect the merit of the people who get them. <laughs> so I, I mean... Yeah, I, I guess it's there, there's. I don't know where to draw that line between saying, 
yeah, I know I'm going to be affected by my own personal kind of interests and motivations, and I'm not going to see the world perfectly clearly because I'm distorted by the motivated reasoning that I'm doing. But, you know, maybe this is a good argument. Like, maybe you just throw the argument out there and you see what people make of it. And if it's terrible, then, well, you'll hear from them, presumably. Yeah, right. Well, I do have two sort of like um, anecdotes about my efforts to find out if students feel like I'm like too much of a hater or cultivating a, a, a climate of sneering in, in my classes or my lab. So, so one is that um, I have lab meetings on a bi- biweekly basis, and sometimes undergrads come to these lab meetings, um, usually sort of like more senior undergrads who have some sort of larger role in the lab. And so for the last lab meeting of this year, the undergrads were sort of like in charge of deciding what we did at the lab meeting and what we read. Um, And they had us, I think, I think we ended up watching a video about like the paradox of choice or something like that, that that was something that they were interested in. And they, um, part of what they wanted to talk about was a study on like priming and priming's influence on like consumer preferences. And so this is like the one time that they're leading a lab meeting. And uh, I I sort of tried to be gentle in my like response. Like I tried not to be like, there's no point in us even discussing this because like this is obviously like not a replicable finding and like we can just like move on. Right. So I tried to I tried to like give the idea a bit more credence. And my grad students just ripped the undergrads apart. <laughs> um, so they were just like, uh, this is obviously a false positive. I, I give this like a two percent chance of being true. Like it's kind of hard to discuss this because this is trash. Um, and so like, I don't know. I mean, that was kind of an encouraging moment to me because at least my grad stu- my grad students were like harsher than I was. And so at least they think that there is value in, I guess, learning this skepticism. And they thought it was important to convey this skepticism to undergrads. They weren't like too shy about it. Um, so that was like, I don't know, that was an encouraging moment for me um, in terms of of feeling like that doesn't, yeah, expressing those concerns doesn't isn't always perceived as like pessimistic and and discouraging. So do you think that this is in any way undermined your students like enthusiasm for the work? I mean, the grad students specifically, like they have these beliefs uh, about at least some research that it's not trustworthy and shouldn't be taken seriously. Does that demotivate them? Honestly, I think that it probably does to some degree. Um, I think it demotivates them from doing a certain kind of work. And I think that I think that it challenges some reasons why people come to grad school, right? So like um I for instance went to grad school thinking that you could do research that would, you know, could impact the world in a positive way. And it's not that I don't believe that that's true now, but I think that it's much, much, much harder than I originally thought. Um, And I find that discouraging, you know, like it makes me like sometimes want to be like, 
ah, maybe research is not the avenue for accomplishing that sort of like positive impact or something like that. Um, so to the extent that like there are some motives that do sincerely get challenged by recognition of the um, problems in the field and the challenges of doing rigorous science, I do think that grad students can become less motivated um, and and start to believe that this is not the right way for them to pursue their goals. But I don't think that's a bad thing necessarily. Right. Like that doesn't necessarily seem to be negative to me. So if you're like, I want to really change the world in these concrete ways, then I would say maybe better do something else actually, right? If that's your goal. And more generally, if you're like, uh, I want to do work that means a lot to me. And if your sense of doing meaningful work is threatened by the fact that the field has and has had problems and that a lot of our findings are untrustworthy and that we're now questioning which of our methods we can trust, then you know, maybe it's better for you to find meaningful work elsewhere, which does exist, right? This kind of implicit assumption that if they don't keep going in academia, it's somehow a failure. That seems weird to me. Like, they ought to be doing it with full information and saying, well, we can't tell them these unpleasant truths because it'll undermine them. It's like, okay, so we're supposed to mislead them about where we're at? That doesn't seem right. Yeah, right. I'm imagining this alternative where I'm, yeah, to the extent that we like feel confident that some of this criticism is, is accurate and valid, like the consequence of just like sort of, um, glossing over these problems is what like putting, it's like putting, um, Nisbet's like ideal researcher, like out into the world, um, only to have them presumably like 20 or 30 years down the line like realize the truth and then be like I've wasted my whole life but maybe by that point you have developed so much motivated reasoning that you're just like not willing to hear it yeah I I think at that point you're probably fine but in the shorter term you know if you push somebody towards this career path that actually isn't a good fit for well, what's going to make them happy, right? Knowing what the truth actually is, because I, I think it does hit most of us sooner or later, and we have to deal with it. And I mean, for me, it's something that I still, you know, that that bothers me sometimes more than others, but always a little, like that I'm I've invested in this career path using these tools, and they may not work very well for what I want to do, and that's kind of. That is depressing, mm -hmm. but you know better to know that early rather than after you've invested fifteen years of your life in something. I would think, right? And I mean, I also, I guess, I think the concern about students getting depressed by the field. We also have some reason to think that it's sort of exciting to feel like you're entering a field that is like undergoing, like sort of like a revolution, right? Um, I mean, we talked about this a little bit before, I think when we talked about, um, like 
sometimes conspiracy theories are appealing because it sounds fun to like be part of a group of people who's in on the truth, you know, and who like understands that like the rest of the the world doesn't doesn't like get why everything is like fucked up, you know? And yeah, a lot of people find that appealing and motivating, especially if you feel like there's some traction, you can gain some traction in sort of like changing things. And like, I mean, like we were talking about last episode, I think that there's there's pretty good reason to think that we're making some, we're gaining some ground at least. Yeah. So for you personally, how did that look? So you came into grad school, you had these ambitious goals, uh, ego depletion didn't work. Did did you get like disillusioned in grad school and then bounce back and be, no, I still want to do this and here's why? Did it happen a little later? Like, what was the story there? Um, so I was disillusioned at the very beginning of graduate school because I didn't, I didn't enjoy research. Like, I didn't feel excited about what I was doing research on, and like, I, I didn't feel like I was finding things, and um, yeah, I just found it like unrewarding. Um, I think that I actually started to enjoy grad school because I started to find conferences and the sort of like um, community fun. Like I started to have friends and um, feel like part of like a group that was like a fun group to be part of. And so I think it was like that sense of like in inclusion and like being part of a a community that has these like shared goals or whatever that was like exciting to me um and then yeah I mean I think that since then it's like fluctuated and been maybe like more influenced by my um concerns about about what research can accomplish um but I think for the like for the positive reasons that that we've noted. So I don't think that I ever felt like, ugh, we need to just stop being so mean to each other or something. I think I have had thoughts like, okay, maybe research isn't accomplishing what I originally thought it was capable of or something like that. But I don't find the field like depressing because of criticism. I've also never been like the target of a bunch of I've never I've never come up with like a finding that's so like interesting that people choose to like publicly criticize it. You know, so for me I I I went to grad school before this stuff was really on the radar um and I had a really great cohort with me in grad school and so I felt like very into it from the beginning and was like very excited about what I was doing and it was sort of this Nisbetian old school approach to coming up with research questions where it's like, look around you to life. What's interesting? Don't worry so much about reading the literature before you start doing the thing. Uh, which, you know, sometimes worked and sometimes didn't. Um, and certainly we did plenty of p-hacking. And then, yeah, it, you know, this all of this other stuff happened later and it really did still does often 
make me question like whether I made the right choice to do this because I think it's possible that we don't have the tools to answer the questions that we want to answer and that we've kind of gone down this route of biting off more than we can chew and making these promises about our methods, being able to, to deliver more than they're capable of delivering, just given how complicated people are. And that's kind of a scary thought. Like, I don't think we've quite gotten to the end of that. Um, and I know that I've, I've mentioned this to, at least in passing on the show before, but, uh, Betsy Levy Pellick, who, who studies, um, you know, prejudice among other things, uh, she gave a, a talk in our departmental colloquium about interventions to reduce prejudice. And she talked about uh, a lot of the work that's been done and a lot of it is quite bad. And in the end, her recommendation was, well, you could be more like economists where you can, you might be able to take advantage of observational data and use their causal inference techniques to, to make uh, conclusions about causality, even though you haven't like run, you know, a traditional lab experiment. It's like, I believe that those methods are good and that for, you know, big social questions where we really care about real world impacts that, that is more informative than running a lab study. But if the answer is as a field, we should just be economists and, and and be worse at it because we haven't had their training. That doesn't sound like a great answer, right? And so like at the same time, I was like, wow, what a great talk. And I really like buy these recommendations. And I'm kind of depressed because it's like, what's our value add? Like her point was sort of, there isn't one from the traditional lab experiments. They're just not that informative. And that's kind of a bummer. Yeah, that does sound like a bummer. And yeah, I mean... I, I don't think that I have uh like I don't think I have a response to that. I mean I I don't fully under, like I don't know the argument for why um why approaching things as economists would be better. Um but I do think that there's like a real there is like a mismatch certainly between what I thought social psychology could do when I started in the field and what I now believe that it can do. And it's not to the point where I think that it can't do anything. Um, but, you know, I've certainly thought a lot about like, you know, if we were, if we were to be using the skill set that we have in the most efficient way possible, what would we actually be doing? I don't, I don't know what the answer to that is. Sometimes I think it's more like we should be trying to address more sort of like circumscribed problems. Um, and trying less to do, um, to sort of like describe people in general or something like that. Um, but there's a lot of people who have a lot of expertise on, on that and are good at doing that too. And that's also not me. So, um, so I don't know. <laughs> right. Right. Well, we've, we've come to a very dark place here, I feel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is there any hope of getting out of it? Mm, yeah. So I guess there's the like approach where you get to a dark spot and you're like, okay, how can we like turn this around to end, end the show on like a positive note? And then, and then I guess there's like the possibility of just embracing the, the darkness and, you know. 
it just sitting with that just just pure nihilism well okay i i will say like i still have fun doing my work and you know maybe it's that i've settled for smaller questions and i don't have the the illusion that i'm like going to be able to draw any like grand conclusions from the stuff that i'm doing but like i have a paper coming out about like how people interpret different comparisons so like if i'm like this restaurant is better than that restaurant versus that restaurant is worse than this restaurant like those can be logically equivalent but people infer really different things from them i was like huh that's weird i wonder why that happens and so now we have a paper about that. Is that going to change the world? Like, probably not, right? Mm-hmm. Is it going to uh, fix any sort of like social problem or injustice? Definitely not. Is anybody outside of my small group of judgment and decision-making people going to get super worked about up about this finding? Yeah, probably also not. But I kind of think it's cool. I mean... I, I don't know that I, to me that counts for something. I mean, it's, I find it personally motivating. Yeah. I mean, so I think like things like that and, and probably your feelings of personal motivation working on this project, probably they are like infectious and your grad students feel them and, and they feel like interested in pursuing these questions too. And I think there's a lot of value in that. But I, I was also going to say like, I mean, despite like the sort of dark turn this conversation took, I, I basically never feel like I don't enjoy my job. I enjoy my job quite a lot. And I think, I mean, one thing that I think I get a lot of value out of, and in some ways the sort of like the negative stuff and the criticism actually fuels this is like, I really like teaching and I talk about these issues a lot when I teach. And I think it's important for grad students and undergrads to learn about this stuff, both the like concrete facts about social psychology, but also like just the sort of like more general um, approach to the sciences that doesn't sort of like um, concede to the experts immediately and um, trust that data is objective and that kind of thing. Like I think there's, there's value in sort of like using this as a pedagogical tool in some ways. So, yeah, I, I really feel like very uh, dep- depressed about the field or my job. Yeah, it's funny how you can sort of separate that. Uh, the, the sort of in the abstract assessment of how's the field doing versus the day-to-day. How do you feel about the work that I'm doing? It's it Because to me, it's maybe there's a difference there between the, you know, people who study happiness and, and life satisfaction, they distinguish between in the moment happiness versus are you satisfied with your life and, and something that in the moment makes you quite unhappy, like having a young child also seems to be associated with higher life satisfaction. So maybe it's the case that the stuff that I'm happy about day to day, looking back over the course of five years, I might think, oh, well, what was that all for? But today, my focused work time consisted of making one plot but I hadn't made that kind of plot before, and I think it looks really nice. And so I feel a sense of accomplishment about that. And and so 
that I feel is where my day-to-day feeling good or bad about research comes from is like, I was trying to do this thing. Do I feel like it worked out well or not? So you feel like your uh, life as a researcher is the equivalent of uh, the life of parentless adults? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm doing great. I have so much freedom. Am I going to look back in 10 years and say, oh, I wish I had done things differently? What was it all for? Exactly. What's the point of any of what it? What have I left behind? Nothing. No legacy. No legacy. Wow. Okay. I feel like that's a great spot to to wrap it up. You think so too? I agree. Yes. Fantastic. 